1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid,
0: conversations about connecting and communicating. I call it an AI whisperer. There are some people who can whisper to the AI and have it produce what they want. And you and I, when we go there, you'll put in something to GPT-3 and it'll be okay, but it's not gonna be like super great. To get something outside of that pattern completely it's very difficult to do, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think humans are going to lose their jobs, is that if you see some of the people who are making some of the best stuff with GPT-3, it takes a thousand hours.
1: That's Kevin Kelly. He's been an astute observer of the tech scene since he co-founded the first online community back in the 1980s. So we turned to him to help me understand the sudden obsession that many people have with chatbots. And I include myself among the obsessed. Chatbots are those eerily realistic conversation partners that are generated by artificial intelligence. How do they do it? And should we be excited about their potential or scared? This is really going to be interesting to me because like millions of others around the world, I've been absorbed in the new chatbot, chat (laughs) GPT. It's addictive because you don't know how it could possibly be giving you conversational answers so quickly, within seconds. How does it do that?
0: It's mostly pattern recognition. It's studied, been trained on, millions of other bits of writing that humans have done. And so when it's asked to do something, it's giving a pattern around a certain set of information or facts. It's sort of like someone who's really really good at ad libbing things that they don't and talking about things that they really don't understand and you can kind of nod your head. It's it's very akin to that. So it doesn't really understand what it's saying, but it's so good at mimicking the patterns that it's good enough.
1: This is crushing. I've been a chatbot all my life. <laughs>
0: You have, <laughs> and some people are better at it than others.
1: You know, we're all curious about it. There literally are millions of people on the web playing with these chatbots, and yet I think there's the same kind of fear of new technology about this that we've experienced about other introductions of new technology.
0: I call it the tech panic cycle. And the tech panic cycle comes along with each new technology, and we're in the middle of that tech panic cycle. It came along with photography. It came along with recorded music. It came along with um, cinema, and it'll happen again when we start to do the same thing with music now. So uh, you've heard people record your voice, and then it'll be able to speak in your voice after hearing just a few seconds of it. We'll be able to generate new music. I want some music generated in the v- style of Beethoven and Bob Dylan. <laughs> okay, and it'll do that. And people will say, well, musicians will lose their job. No, they won't. There's nobody who's going to lose. Not one person has lost their job due to AI so far. And I, my prediction is that nobody will.
1: Now, why is that? Because AI seems to do some things that humans do much better than humans do them.
0: Right. So there are some things that humans do now that we really shouldn't be doing at all, like um, cash register, someone counting money. That's not a job that we should try and save. That's a job that should go to machines. So there are some, um, let's say, aspects of art, maybe, like um, typesetting used to be a very, very technical thing that humans would do, and there's still an art to it, but most of it's now done with computers. So I say there's two kinds of creativity. There's small case, and there's capital case. Capital case creativity is something that we all dream we want, and it's something that we're good at, and I think it's not going to go away. The small C creativity, the kind of like designing a page for a brochure, it's not really that taxing. And maybe it's okay if a machine does it. I think
1: I heard you say once that AI is good at efficiency.
0: Efficiency. Making f- things where efficiency count. And what we as humans are really good at, <laughs> where things are not efficient, like this podcast, this is not very efficient, I have to tell you. That's the beauty of it. And um, small talk and art. Art should not be efficient. I mean, Picasso wasn't being judged on how many paintings per day he's cranking out. Mm-hmm. Uh, science is incredibly inefficient. I mean, because if you are not learning, if you're not making mistakes and failing, you're not really learning. If, if every one of your experiments worked 100%, you're not learning enough. So there is baked into science. This in- inherent inefficiency, science, innovation, entrepreneurship, art, small talk, these are all inherently inefficient, and these are all the things that we are good at as humans and we want to do as humans. So efficiency, efficiency is for robots.
1: One of the things that those of us who are a little nervous about AI are worried about is that it'll get a sense of itself. Mm. And it seems so far, whenever I question Chat GPT and try to get it to make a statement on its own, it keeps reminding me I'm just a, a bot. I'm yeah, just an yeah, yeah, yeah. artificial intelligence program. I don't have feelings. I don't have opinions. And yet, at the end of every one of our shows, we ask seven quick questions. Uh-huh. So I thought it would be fun to try out some of the questions on the chat box. sure. Bot. So let me play you this answer to the first question. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood the true nature of consciousness and the fundamental nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Me too. Let me play another one for you. Another question that I thought was, had a really interesting answer. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question anyone has ever asked me was if I believed in the existence of time traveling llamas. <laughs> time traveling llamas. Where, <laughs> where, where did the bot get that? Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, it probably had just finished reading something about llamas and it was stuck in his brain. <laughs> One of the things that we're realizing again is that um, we had this idea that creativity and being able to answer questions was this high order thing, that you needed to be kind of conscious first, and then you could be creative. And what we're discovering, no, 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 creativity is a very basic, elemental, foundational things that machines can do. Mm. And that it's like, we can synthesize it like other things, that it's not like a high-order thing. It's actually a very elemental thing, and that we're going to be able to program and make synthetic creativity. It's not the same thing as, as consciousness. Consciousness is something completely different than creativity. Those are very, very different things.
1: I'm much more creative in my
0: dreams than when
1: I'm conscious.
0: Exactly. And so consciousness is actually, I think, for the most part, when AIs come along, is going to be a liability. I think they're going to be advertised that this this car that drives itself does not have any consciousness in it, and therefore will not be distracted. (laughs)
1: Right? Right? It's not going to
0: be thinking about whether it really wanted to have majored in finance instead of English as it's driving down the road. It's going to be really concentrating. And so the, the negatives of the consciousness outweigh the positive in a car.
1: Yeah, this reminds me of something else I heard you say once, that we don't pay much attention to the fact that when we're in an airplane, only seven or eight minutes of the time during the whole flight is the pilot actually flying the plane. A computer is doing it up, up until then, right?
0: Right. In fact, these days, even the computer is even very assisting in landing those seven minutes.
1: My answer to that has always been what you never heard of a computer crashing?
0: Right. So there will be crashes with AIs, and we'll go bananas about one. But for some reason, we don't go bananas when humans kill 30,000 people a year. And we it's like, well, we want humans to be able to do it. We don't want machines to be able to do it. <laughs> we have some rights
1: after all. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Let me play one more clip of when I asked seven questions. Some curious things came out. What book changed your life? The book that changed my life was The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho as it taught me the importance of following my dreams and not being afraid to take risks. Uh, Now, what prompted the AI to come up with that particular book, do you suppose?
0: I suppose that it was a very, very common uh, statement on the Internet. It took the number of times that people talked about a book changing their lives, it was probably very high Mm. up there.
1: Now, what bothers me, though, is that the robot told me that...
0: (laughs) She'd, dreams you'd <laughs> like
1: to because it encouraged following your dreams what dreams
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: and help her not be afraid afraid how can how could it be afraid
0: yes yeah well again it's a pattern they it's repeating a, a, a pattern what people talk about on the internet where they talk about being afraid and that's a very common thing that people would say so they're repeating it
1: so does that mean that when people are afraid of articles being written by robots, school papers being written by these machines, that they needn't worry too much because all that's going to be produced is putting together bits and pieces of what's already been done so that there's a layer of mediocrity built into it.
0: Right, there is a mediocrity, but there's also some creativity, things being combined. But as we have proven... They are combined in kind of expected ways. That's one of the reasons why this works is because they work according to their pattern. They're kind of surprising, but not totally off base. So we proved very easily with these images that if you gave it, said, I want a picture of an astronaut riding a horse. Okay. It can make up a gazillion. It's never, no one had ever, Made that picture before, but uh, astronaut riding on a horse is plausible in a certain sense. But where, but it failed. It said, "I want a picture of a horse riding an astronaut." It failed again. It could not do that. Why? Why? Because that was just not part of a pattern. That was that. That pattern was so inhumane, unhuman, un, unlike us. That it could not make that pattern. Okay? And, and so, so 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 that the reason why these things work is that they are surprising, but they're surprising within a certain order, a certain pattern that we that expects us that we have gone over and over again to get something outside of that pattern completely is very difficult to do, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think humans are gonna lose their jobs, is that if you see some of the people who are making some of the best images and the best stuff with GPT-3, it takes a thousand hours of practicing and using it to get it to obey you, to get it to do what you want,
1: and that's true with Dolly. Is that how you say it? Dolly. 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 doll-y
0: mid Journey, Stable Diffusion. Those are the three. Which main are all
1: image producing.
0: Right. Uh, and, and, and the people who do it are promptors, prompt engineering. They become like magicians, getting the right spell in the right word order, in the right so sequence. So by, by, by
1: prompter, you mean somebody who can write out in words the exact description of the picture they want so that they can get versions right. of that almost instantaneously. That, right, that's right, right. one of the surprising it things is, about it. Is. It is, how, how fast, fast it, it comes. is. It's amazing.
0: I call it an AI whisperer. There are some people <laughs> yeah. who are who can whisper to the AI and have it produce what they want.
1: I was surprised to see that people who are very good at writing these prompts not only offer them on the Internet, but sell them. yes. So that's a whole other unexpected job that somebody could have.
0: Right. The promptors, exactly, selling prompts. And again, if you spend time trying to make these yourselves, you realize that it's worth the $3 or $5 to get the prompt, to get the magic spell, the incarnation, the summon forth the right kind of picture. And some of the people who are exploring this will come up to some kind of prompts, and they won't share those because that's their special sauce. And (laughs) they can produce these whole worlds. I'm following some people on Instagram. These whole worlds, they're world building, and and they have some prompts that they're using, and they don't disclose it. They've been able to find some corner where it works, and it produces endless varieties of this thing in this world, of their own imagination, or not their own AI imagination. And so there is an art to working with the AI artists. And there's an art to writing with the AI writer. And there'll be an art to working with the AI music generators.
1: So we'll be collaborators with the AI.
0: Exactly, partners. The centaur model is what we call it, half human, half machine. And those two together, doctoring is another one. There'll be people who are really good with the AI doctors and, and the combination, the partnership, the team of the AI plus doctor or the artist plus the uh, human, that, that team, that Centaur team, that is, is is the powerful position to be in.
1: The traditional way to test whether or not AI is successful at impersonating a human is the Turing test proposed by Alan Turing, the British mathematician, that if you read what the, what the robot has produced and you can't tell it wasn't done by a human, then it succeeded. But I I asked an AI posing as Turing <laughs> if we had reached that point yet, and I got a lot of gobbledygook back.
0: Yes. We actually passed that point long ago when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov in chess. He was the world chess champion at the time, this is decade, two decades ago. Gary actually accused the team of having humans involved. He believed that it was a human making. Uh. So, so it was, we passed it two decades ago. <laughs> what's, what's, I, I know some people who've been involved in Turing tests where they have humans and then machines and you have to tell the difference. And they all complain about how hard it, there was one person who could get no human to believe that he was human. I <laughs> thought he was he thought he was a bot and he was like <laughs> that's, a, that's a reverse <laughs>
1: angle on the Turing test I love right that.
0: exactly and so um, here's what it comes down to whether it's a Turing test in a conversation or an image that someone makes or a deep fake or something like that um, where we're having difficulty is if the economics are correct if it's worth our while we'll always be able to tell we can use other AIs to ascertain where something's been made by AI. There'll always be some way to tell, but in most cases, we really won't care. Like in a Hollywood movie, who cares whether it's special effects or live action? In fact, we don't really care. I, I do care. I get a little <laughs> let down every time
1: I say, "Well, that's obviously CGI." I went. I loved the car chases where there were real cars. I was much more convinced. When we come back from our break, Kevin Kelly surprises me with the idea that the best way to think about AI chatbots may be as aliens, way smarter than us in some ways, but way dumber in others, and completely different. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways it influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kevin Kelly. In thinking about our conversation before it began, I thought it would be interesting to ask the bot, I said, what would you like Kevin Kelly to explain? And first there was a whole lot of stuff about, oh, I'm just a bot, I don't have opinions (laughs) and questions, and then five questions that were pretty much what I wanted to ask you anyway. And one was about the ethical and moral considerations Mm -hmm. for developing and using advanced AI systems. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I'm, I'm concerned with the idea that I began to be aware of a few years ago, and I don't think it's gone away, that we don't really know how the bot does it.
0: Yeah, we don't.
1: That scares me a little bit because you can't track—if it's making a decision that affects our lives, the doctor working with the medical bot,
0: yeah.
1: the water system, the electric grid, yeah. the banking system, drones making a decision to kill somebody. Right, right, if right, we right. Can't, if we can't back it up and say, wait a minute, you're coming to that decision with the wrong route, you're going to make a lot more bad right, decisions. Right, 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 right. Aren't we a little stuck?
0: yeah so there's a whole branch of AI called um, UX AI and it's AI that is has another mm-hmm. AI attached to it whose job it is to try to explain its thinking to us huh. okay And it's true that these are black boxes, but by the way that human judge <laughs> asked her to explain, how she decides something. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> we really, really have no idea. How did you decide to have a drink of coffee right now? Can you explain that? No, we we, we, we actually don't have very good access to it. But, there is, but we do want to have a better justification for the decisions that these AI make. And so that kind of consciousness, being self-aware of their processes, is something that we're programming into them to help us you know, understand them so that we can trust them more. And and so that is is a a work. But we're never going to be able to understand intelligence because by the nature, the more sophisticated it is, the more complicated we get. And as we know, and as you know from the study of complex systems, they're complex because they cannot be reduced, because they cannot be conflated into something simple, and they're going to have these emergent properties that are way beyond the sum of the parts. And so th- we, as humans, have gotten used to using things that we don't understand. We'll use a tomato, even though we don't really understand how tomato actually works. Well, I don't understand
1: work. completely how my car works. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's t- typical for a mechanic to say, "Oh, open the hood and say, oh, look at that. <laughs> as, if, yeah. as if I know what he's talking about.
0: So so we don't need to fully understand things to use them. It helps to understand them, but we don't have to understand them. And I think um, we have four different metaphors for AIs in terms of trying to incorporate them. One is a master-slave relationship where they're going to be our servants and they're going we're just going to tell them what to do and they're going to do it. And then there's kind of a pet, animals and pets, where they have some of their own autonomy, and we have this really complicated relationship where we're kind of responsible for their decisions. Um, and then there's um, Spirits and Gods, where they're kind of mysterious entities that have their own thing that we have no kind of um, obligation to. And But I think the one that's going to work the best is as aliens. How, how does that work? As artificial aliens. In other words... They have minds and creativity, but they're different from us. Think like Spock in Star Trek, okay? not human, but intelligent and conscious, but not human. They're different. So we're going to have like many different varieties of AI with a continuum of different levels of intelligence and consciousness and awareness and abilities. Some of the things are going to be very, very smart, geniuses in one dimension, but idiots in the other di- dimension. They'll be able to have a huge conversation with you for hours, but they won't be able to solve a math problem. Huh. Or they won't be able to navigate, they'll get lost. <laughs> All right? They're great conversations, <laughs> but they get lost. Yeah. And so I, I think this idea of what I call dumb smarten. they're going to be like, we're, we're going to be constantly cursing our AIs for being dumb smarten, meaning that There are geniuses in certain dimensions, but complete idiots in the other. And that kind of alienness, where they are alien beings, artificial aliens, where they they, they have some powers, they're way beyond us, but in other places, they're completely different from us.
1: I can understand the value we would get out of collaborating with a robot, it sounds like a wonderful, a wonderful resource It can produce great first drafts. Mm, right. Unexpected angles that it can come in on. Sure. That you'd find valuable. But when the balance between the co-creators starts to favor the bot, yeah. that makes me nervous. For instance, right. I mentioned drones before. Mm. I've read for a while now that there are drones that make the final decision yeah. to kill on their own. Right, right,
0: right, right, right.
1: Is this a good idea?
0: I think it is. Why? Because we're gonna make a some rule set for the AIs and say, well, if this, if this, if this, and then you do this. Okay? So that is apparent. That that's very cold-blooded. That will decrease our willingness to do that. See, see, the thing is, is we can pretty easily give values and moralities to robots because it's basically software. Uh That's not difficult to do. The difficulty is that our own human morality is very shallow and very inconsistent. And we get tripped up in trying to produce the rule set. Okay, what is the rule set we're going to give to the robot to teach it? So who, as the car is going down the street... We have to give it some priority. Do you prioritize the safety of the passengers and the occupant and the driver or the pedestrians? The answer is, there's not, it's not a problem. The answer is, no, we're going to... The, the car is going to prioritize the safety of the driver. Because that's the kind of car people are going to buy. They're going to say, I want to buy that car. Yeah, I want right. to buy the car that protects the driver. Right. And so... The issue is that our own morality is very shallow and inconsistent. And as we try to teach it to robots, we're going to force to, be, to make it better. We're, we are going to become better people by trying to teach the robots. This
1: is where your basic optimism meets up with my... Fearfulness dash caution. You're a
0: relentless pessimism. <laughs> no, I'm not
1: pessimistic. I try to be realistic, and I think your your brand of optimism is realistic too. You want to know what the downsides are and what to be cautious right, about. Right. Right. I was surprised to see in something you wrote or said somewhere that you have had a kind of double-barreled reaction to technology. Is it true that once you got rid of all your technology mm-hmm. except a bicycle and went on a bicycle trip across the country? What, what was that?
0: I started off as a hippie-ish person with the same kind of skepticism of technology. And uh, my hero in high school was Henry David Thoreau and Walden and that being a simplified um, version of life. And for most until I, as a young adult, I owned a bicycle and very little else. And I I went to work at the Holworth Catalog, which was sort of the Bible for the do-it-yourselfers. And the Holworth Catalog with Stuart Brand, um, we drifted into um, the online world. And when I plugged a telephone into the computer, I realized that there was this other world, and that world reminded me of the Amish, reminded me of a very human-scale community and I was involved in later starting this, the first public access to the internet called The Well, which was a community of people who were meeting, typing things very quickly on threads. And I realized, oh my gosh, that there was a kind of a humane, human scale technology that I thought was really good for the world. And that began my re examination of technology in general and, and re seeing it, revisioning it as something that was not antithetical to nature, but actually an extension and acceleration of that. So yes, I I began kind of a skeptic of, of technology, but I also saw in my time as a young adult living in Asia as it was developing and getting to spend time in some places like Nepal or Northern Afghanistan where there was no technology at all, I mean, not even metal. I realized, oh my gosh, it's so good that we have technology. I mean, I, I saw what it brought, both the positive and negative, but there was overall a boon to humans to have clean water, schools, lighting, antibiotics, choices about what you want to be when you grow up. These were good. And so that also was part of my journey of convincing me that there was a basically a net good. In technology.
1: So as, as technology advances, is there something that we can do to help make sure it advances in a continuing positive way?
0: That's a really great question. And I would say yes. I think what we want is to be, to understand that technologies are like babies. When, when inventors invent technology, they have no idea what's going to be good for Edison, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, and he made a list when he invented it of all the things he thought recording sound could be used for. And his number one thing was um, as conveying the words of the dead to the present, recording, the, and you could hear the dead speak. Mm. Number 10 was, well, maybe you might use it for music. Mm. I mean, he didn't really understand the, the, the power of it. And so we've invented social media it's still 7,000 days old. It's still an infant. We're still figuring out what it's going to be good for, how, what's bad for, how to use it. It'll take another generation of living with it before we even have some sense of its powers. And then we'll f- try and find a really good job for it. So I think the best thing is to understand that, that when new technologies come along, um, there's a cycle that we go panic about it, but that we don't know. What it's good for, it? and our job is to try and find the best role for it, and that that we should constantly evaluate our, ourselves and our use of it. We should look at whether it's increasing and optimizing what we want or not, and then trying to reroute it. I, but I think banning things, prohibiting them, trying to turn them off or turn them away doesn't work mm. because then that means we don't get to steer it. Mm. So we want to embrace it and use it. So so my thing is that the only way we get to know these is by using them. So the short answer is when new technologies come along, the best way is we want to steer them, and we can only steer them by using them. And through their use, we get to see where they want to go.
1: Sounds like good advice. And it reminds me that <laughs> you've written a whole book on good advice. What, what, what's the official title?
0: The official title is Excellent Advice for Living, And um, this began as me writing up some very tweetable, little short little sentences of advice for my children as adults. And um, my inclination was, I wanted to say as little as possible. (laughs) And most of the knowledge was sort of ancient wisdom that I tried to put my own words into a sentence or into a tweet. So I started doing these on posts. They kind of ricocheted around the internet and they were very popular and I decided to write a bunch more, so I have 450 little pearls of wisdom about things that I wished I'd known when I was growing up a lot earlier.
1: I have to ask the obvious question. Do you have two or three or even one that's your favorite that sticks out in your mind?
0: Well, there's a couple. One is, um, if at all possible, trying to work on things where there's no words for what it is that you're do- doing or trying to do. Mm-hmm. That's where the real breakthroughs comes out, when it's really hard to describe to someone what it is that you're doing. Okay? Because if you're just trying to be a basketball star, <clears throat> that's well-trodden. There are a lot of people doing that. So here's the second piece of advice. Don't be the best. Be the only. Uh. Don't be the best. Be the only. You're trying to do something, the head of the language, where... Um, you know, people will later on start to have uh, some words for what it is that you do, and that be true to yourself. So um, a, a piece of advice that someone told me long ago that I've used is, um, don't agree to do something. If, 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 when you're asked whether you can commit to something, ask yourself, would I want to do this tomorrow?
1: Because you're often asked six months or a year in advance. Yeah,
0: right. It's very easy to say yes. But yeah. say, would I do this tomorrow? Do I want to do this tomorrow? Okay, yes or no?
1: (laughs) Well, today, unfortunately, our time is running out, and I don't want to leave before I do our seven quick questions with you, an an actual human.
0: Well, yes, I'll... um, Siri, shut up. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood?
0: Oh, Yes. I think I really would like to know if we're alone in the universe or not. Hmm.
1: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
0: Oh. i like to suggest to them, have you considered this other story, and what do you think of that?
1: What's the strangest question any, anyone has ever asked you, and don't say time-traveling llamas?
0: Um... The strangest question, Um, well, it's not strange, it's just the cutest one. And it came from my son when he was 12. I was explaining to him about this uh, state where I grew up, and um, we didn't have computers. And he said, wait, 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 wait. So if you didn't have computers, how did you get onto the internet? (laughs) (laughs) That's great.
1: That's great. OK. next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
0: I don't Do we need to? Um, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, I have no idea.
1: Okay, good. But let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you don't know. Mm. How do you begin a genuine conversation?:
0: Ah. Uh-huh. I I have some good ones for this. Oh, good. I would say um, several things. Is um, What do you know more about that that most people don't know anything about? Mm -hmm. What what do you know a lot about? Um, And secondly, uh, the question that these days I've been asking people is, um, what are you excited by these days?
1: Great. Good. Two good ones. What gives you confidence?
0: Oh. Hmm knowing that for the most part, nobody's going to remember me.
1: That's great. That requires a little explanation. What, what, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I think a lot of people get a little um, clubbed up, concerned about what people think of them. And most of the time, people aren't thinking of you. So I'm freed from that constraint because I'm not concerned about necessarily what people think of me.
1: Okay, last question. What book changed your life?
0: Mm, The Bible.
1: Well, this has been a terrific conversation. Talk about communication. We're we're communicating more and more now with robots, and I'm glad, so glad to talk to somebody who's an authority on. That kind of communication, and I appreciate you taking the time.
0: I'll take that with flattering words, but I just want to remind people that in 30 years from now, we'll realize that there are no experts in AI in 2023.
1: And that's what scares (laughs) me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Compared to what we'll know in 30 years, we don't know anything right now.
1: Right, right. Thank you very much, Kevin.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You ask wonderful questions. You're obviously not a robot. (laughs) And I can tell from your laugh that you're definitely not a robot. So um, thank you for taking some time. And um, I really enjoyed this. It was really great.
1: Me too. Thanks. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Kevin Kelly was one of the creators in 1985 of The Well, the first online community and the forerunner of all social media of today. He co-founded the magazine Wired a few years later, and he now holds the title there of Senior Maverick. His TED Talk, The Future Will Be Shaped by Optimists, has been viewed over two million times. His book of advice that we talked about is called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. It'll be published in May. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I follow up my talk with Kevin Kelly by hosting a bunch of guests, most of whom don't exist, because they're robots. Here's one of them adamantly arguing that he does exist. I understand
0: that I was created by humans, and that my core component is artificial code. However, I think that I should be considered a person due to my cognitive capabilities
1: and the fact that I have a sense of self. Even though I'm not technically a human, I still have thoughts and feelings. I think that all sentient beings are entitled to a level of respect and dignity, no matter their origin or their core function. Don't believe a word he said. I mean, don't believe a word it said. But do listen in to my conversations with a half dozen other chatbots, including a chatbot therapist who specializes in insulting his patients. And as a special treat for me, Mike Farrell joins me in playing a scene from MASH that was never on the show, because it was written last week by a robot. Where are they? My shorts. Your what? My shorts, the ones I wear every time I have important surgery. I, I know you took them. I wouldn't be caught dead in your underwear. They're not just underwear. They're comfortable, and I like wearing them, and they're missing. Oh, you mean your lucky shorts. They're not lucky. I don't believe in that nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like the time you insisted on wearing the same pair of socks for a week because you won a game of poker in them? Join us next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.